Will you take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 23 through 14, 23. We're in the Old Testament once again. It seems right now that a lot of pastors and even some of the guests that are coming here are drawn to the Old Testament. And we seem to be drawn to these narratives that we see in the Scripture that um, get the blood going. Uh, We're looking at people who would dare to be a Daniel. We're called to be like a Daniel. Daniel uh, standing strong in a corrupt culture. A couple weeks ago, we heard a message of uh, Deborah and how the prophetess Deborah stood so boldly against the opposition. Jared's been bringing us messages that take us into the Old Testament, giving us courage. I'm going to be doing the same thing today. I'm going to be bringing us a message that some scholars call the hero messages in 1 Samuel. Swashbuckling stories, but they're true stories. 1 Samuel. What I want to do before we read our portion in Scripture is set the stage. I'm going to be bringing a message to you today that talks about the problem, the solution, observations, and then finally, uh, the challenge. Here's the problem that we're dealing with here in this portion of Scripture, the Israelites we're dealing with in 1 Samuel. The Israelites, for at least 180 years, 200 years, had been living under the leadership of judges. The people of Israel are new in the Promised Land, but they have caved over and over again to the cultural value system that existed in the land of Canaan. And again and again, they were pressed and put under the authority of godless leaders, uncircumcised leaders. And again and again, Israel found themselves powerless to resist their influence and their authority. They were in the promised land, these godless leaders, and Israel, because of their disobedience to God, had no power to stand against them. So God again and again would rise up, raise up uh, in his mercy judges who would help to deliver them. The people in the days of the judges were doing what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes. If you read the end of the book of Judges, that's how it concludes. The people had no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's judges. That's what we're dealing with here in this book of Samuel. Samuel is a judge, and he's about ready to install a new king, and he does in the person of Saul. He's the first king of Israel, and he had only been ruling Israel as a king for two years, but there was a flaw in Saul. 
Saul, as a king who began so well, began to do what was right in his own eyes. Saul, two years into his kingship, calls for the Israelites. He calls some special people, 3,000 of them, to stand against the strongest of all the enemies of God's people in Israel, the Philistines. The Israelites had many enemies, Amalekites and Moabites and on and on, Canaanites, but it was the Philistines who were the strongest. Saul calls for 3,000 to begin to stand against the oppressive Philistine presence. 2,000 of those that were called were to meet with Saul in a town called Michmash, which was just four miles away from where Saul grew up. Saul grew up in a town called Gibeah. So out of the 3,000, 2,000 are four miles away at Michmash with King Saul. 1,000 of them are with Jonathan. See, Saul's got this son. He's a strong son. His name's Jonathan. And he has Jonathan. Jonathan's got 1,000 troops, and they're there at Gibeah. That's, that's Saul's hometown. That's Jonathan's hometown. It's where he grew up. Now, Jonathan's a very bold one, and he took those thousand, and he went against a a Philistine garrison in a town that was only two miles away from Gibeah called Geba. And it was there that Jonathan defeated the Philistine garrison that was there, and Jonathan and the Israelites, Saul being their king, had become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. They were greatly incensed that Saul would have the audacity to attack them. Saul knows that. He knows that the Israelites have become a stench in the nostrils of the oppressive Philistines. And so Saul calls for a muster of the people of Israel. He leaves Michmash, where he was, close to his town, and he goes to another town in Benjamin called Gilgal. And there in Gilgal, 600 show up. Why so few? Instead of 3,000, Only 600 show up in Gilgal, and they were trembling. Why? Because at the same time that Saul was mustering the people of Israel, the Philistines, the mighty Philistines, were mustering their troops. And they were able to muster 30,000, according to some translation, chariots. Some translations say 3,000 chariots. And 6,000 horsemen and troops and soldiers that were as great as the sand on the seashore, a massive army being brought together. And the Philistines, to show Saul who was boss, the very area that Saul had just vacated, Michmash, that's where the Philistines go with all their chariots and all their horsemen and all the soldiers. They go right to Michmash, and there they are sending out raiding parties. And the Israelites were trembling. The people of Israel were trembling, not just the 600 or the 3,000. Many of them went into hiding. Some hid in caves of the Israelites. Some went into holes in the ground. Some hid among the rocks. Some even hid in graves and tombs. Some hid in their cisterns, their wells. Some fled the area altogether. Some just flat out fled out of Benjamin. Let's get out of Benjamin. Let's go to the next 
tribe. They would flee to Ephraim. It would be like running from Lake County. Let's get out of here. Let's go to Porter. And some of the Israelites actually crossed over and got out of, out of the town, got out of the area altogether. They crossed the Jordan and said, let's even get out of this entire territory. They fled. But worse than that, some of the Israelites crossed over and they joined the Philistines. Saul comes back from Gilgal. He had been disobedient. He went to Gilgal to try to muster up the troops and encourage the troops. And in his, in his anxiety, he sacrificed an unlawful offering. Saul did what was right in his own eyes. Not in the eyes of God did he do what was right, but in his own eyes. And God was not with him. Even though Saul was ready to fight, you've got to fight with clean hands, with a right heart before God. And so the people are trembling. Could it get any worse? Yes. It's the day of battle now. What could be worse? There's not a blacksmith to be found in all of Israel. The Philistines are in control of all the blacksmiths. And they're not allowing the Israelites to have any swords or spears. The only way that an Israelite could have a weapon is if they took a farming implement an axe, a goad, some plowshare kind of thing, and take it to the Philistines, pay a huge price, and they would sharpen their farming instruments, and that's what the Israelites had. The Israelites had only a sword in the hands of Saul, a sword in the hands of Jonathan, and that was it. There were no other swords or spears among the army of the Israelites. And the raiding parties are coming out from Michmash. Saul is at Migron a little town close to his hometown with 600 trembling men in a cave or under a tree. And Jonathan had had enough. Jonathan had had enough. Would you have had enough? This is... Jonathan's God that's being insulted. It's God's glory that is at stake here. These are Jonathan's people. These are the people of God, the chosen people. The Philistines are insulting. And this is Jonathan's homeland. They're not just in his tribe. They're right there in his neighborhood, the Philistines are. Jonathan knows every trail. He knows every cliff. He names them. He loves the land. This is the promised land. Let's go to the solution. Shall we read together? Follow me. This is Jonathan's solution. Is it ours? In this day and age? One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. 
And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other, Sine. You see how much they love the land? They even named their cliffs. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Remember, Geba is only two miles away from where Jonathan grew up. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see how God is glorified with that kind of attitude? Jonathan's audacious. He's not afraid. He's not one of the trembling ones. Because God is with him. And his armor bearer was just like him. He said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Notice how he said, Into the hand of Israel. You see how Jonathan's not looking for his own glory? He's looking for the glory of God, and he's looking for the glory of God's people, not his own. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet, and his armor bearer was after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men within, it, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp. In the field and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone out from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these two young men long ago stirred up the people of God because they were concerned for your glory, for your people, 
and for the land, and they had you with them. Stir us up this morning, Lord, to also live boldly, strongly, and courageously for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of this message is Revive Us Again. Twenty were killed. A little less than a half acre of land. Panic in the camp. Panic in the field. Panic among the people of, of uh, the Philistines. It's those. It's the Philistines that are now trembling. They're trembling in the garrison. They're trembling in the, the raiders. The raiders who are going out are even trembling. And the earth is quaking. God is with them. There's a great panic in the camp. Pandemonium. The multitudes disperse. There's a tumult and confusion in the camp, sword against sword. One fellow cutting down another. The Philistines cutting themselves down. And Saul and the tremblers are now fighting. The Hebrews return. They come out of hiding. It's a rout. The day is saved. Israel is saved. The Lord is doing the saving. And he used a courageous man and his armor bearer to do so. Gets the blood going, doesn't it? But what motivates Jonathan and the armor bearer and people like David with Goliath to such feats of courage, such audacity? I mentioned three primary themes that are the motivation for people like David, like Jonathan. God's glory, God's people, and the promised land. God's given promised land. God's glory. Israel's God is the God of all creation. He is the creator. He is sovereign over all things. He is all-powerful. He is the one the Israelites worship. And he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it's this very God, this creator God, who said to the Israelites, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is why Jonathan does not tremble. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. Jonathan said he will deliver whether by many or by few. There's a verse in the Bible that I think would encourage you, and it says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and they fall, but we rise up and stand firm. That's Psalm number 20. Do you know who wrote Psalm 20? Do you know who wrote those words? It was David, who became Jonathan's best friend. They had not yet, yet met at this time that we're, we're reading about Jonathan. But you're going to read shortly after this episode, episode with Jonathan and his armor bearer, David is going to do something that even exceeds what Jonathan and the armor bearer did. He's the one that said, some trust in chariots, 30,000 chariots. Some trust in horses, 6,000 horses and horsemen. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Can we take a moment here? Let me, it's just better just to read this. 
Listen to this. This is, you want to hear how David talks? These are his words. It's two chapters over. Philistine, Goliath. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And you know what David did after he said that? He ran at Goliath, while the rest of the army stood on a hillside, trembling day after day. God gets the glory. David didn't have a sword. He didn't have a javelin. He had a slingshot. Beacon Light, sometimes you might feel small and ill-equipped. You don't have a sword. You don't have an internet. You don't have a website. You don't have a youth pastor. You don't have, you don't have, you don't have. You have everything you need. You have everything you need. You have God with you. The call is to stand. We've got to pause here and be careful. We're reading these stories, these preachers and pastors who are coming in, and we're reading these stories out of the past. Is that Israel? That's long ago. The principles that applied then still apply today. The people and the land of our day today are defiled and corrupted. The enemies and the opposition to God's people, the church especially when I say God's people, is intensifying and it is growing. Jonathan and David both contended for God's glory. They were concerned for the welfare of the people of God, Israel, and they loved the land. Today, we contend for God's glory. We're concerned for the people of God, the church for whom Christ died. The church, if you can accept it, is the Israel of God. We're concerned for the land. We're concerned for this community where we're placed, especially the lost souls within our community. We've been called to love our community, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We're concerned as it was then, so now even more. Christians, Christ is in us. I want to say... When a Christian, a Christ one, walks in obedient faith and courageously does what is right, who fears nothing but the Lord, who depends on the Lord, who trusts in the Lord, who wants God to be glorified, who cares for the honor of the people of God, the church, who care for the land and the community, who love to reach out to lost souls, who love their neighbors as themselves, when that man, when that woman, that church stands up for righteousness' sake or any cause for the kingdom, God honors that one. One person, a David, can put an entire army to flight. Two people, Jonathan and the armor bearer, can put 
an entire garrison of Philistines to flight. The Bible says that when people live in obedience and in trust with the Lord, five will put a hundred to flight. One hundred will put ten thousand to flight. That's Leviticus chapter 26. It's a principle and it's true. Why does it happen? Because God is with them. But you can also see it in the face of the people who live that way, who trust the Lord, they love the Lord, they obey the Lord, they want to do the Lord's will. You see it in their face. They're not afraid of anything. There's a boldness in them, a determination, a grit, a courage. And it comes because they know they're doing what is right. They know that they're doing what God's will is. And they know that God is with them, that Christ is with them. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their spirit. There's nothing that can stand against such a woman or such a man, a Deborah, a Jonathan, a David. You can kill them, but you can't stop their witness. It'll go on even more if you kill them. God honors such a one. You can stand in this culture. God is with you. Bring glory to his name. Obey him and stand. Furthermore, when you stand that way, any man or woman of God, a Christian, a Christ one, and lives by those principles that I was just mentioning, it's not just that you can stand against the oppressive culture. They need to see it. You see you stand. There are lost people that are waiting for you to stand. But you encourage the Christians. When you stand that way, if you're here and you stand that way, wherever your setting is, you encourage the timid. You inspire the discouraged. You you help give a backbone to the ones that are trembling and cowardly. You convict the worldly Christians. You draw the wayward backslider back into the fold. Do you see how many people are not back to the church? They've got all kinds of excuses of why they're not worshiping the Lord. This is our greatest testimony that God is God, worthy to be worshipped, that he's in control. It's when the saints gather, like Jonathan and David, when you stand firm and brave, you don't have to be loud. Just have a determination in your face. You're going to do what's right for the Lord, for the church, and for the sake of lost people for the land. You're going to put a fire in the heart of the church if you stand that way. You're going to help get the blood going, just like Jonathan and David did long ago. And you're going to help, saints in the Lord, if you're seated here and you can, you can accept these words this morning, you're going to help the church to remember to what it was called, what it was called to be in this world. A light of the world, a light in the darkness, a city shining on a hill. That's what we're supposed to be, Beacon Light, here in Black Oak, in Gary, Indiana. A city on a hill, light, the salt of the earth. Persecution will come. You're going to convict some if you, some Christians if you, if you stand bravely. You're going to irritate some. There are people at Beacon Light. There are people in churches all over the country Christians in churches all over the country that are irritated at their leadership for various reasons. You're going to offend someone you stand bravely and bold for the Lord. It's happened again and again during this whole COVID season, which seems to continue on and on. 
We're one and a half years into this season, this pandemic, this COVID. It's still going on. You know, I myself have been accused of not taking this COVID stuff seriously. And that this church doesn't take COVID seriously. We take it seriously. We have. I still do. But I take, and so do so many in this church, we take God more seriously. We do. The honor of this church we take more seriously than the gravity that we give to the COVID, which from my perspective, the way it's being portrayed, there's a lot of other narratives that are contributing to the whole COVID narrative. And we have a concern for the land. We know the people have to see a witness of people who stand together for the Lord and don't tremble, who love holiness and who are willing to be a witness for God in this world, bringing him glory. I heard a funny comment this past week. It was by a secular person who's into individuality, just about the person, about yourself. But it was still a funny saying. Here's what the saying was. If standing up for yourself burns a bridge, I have matches. We ride at dawn. I like that, personally. That's a lost person talking about standing up for what they think is their personal individual rights. If standing up for yourself Self burns a bridge, I have matches, we ride at dawn. What if the church said, you know, no matter what's going on out there, no matter what the culture is throwing at you, no matter what the social media is saying, the pundits, CNN, or Fox, we're going to stand and do what's right in the sight of God, no matter what people tell us is the acceptable value system. We're going to stand and do what's right, and we're going to worship. We're going to stand up and do what's right for the sake of God's people. This is the Olympics right now. When you go home, you're going to be watching the Olympics. Probably they're in Tokyo. In 1924, the Olympics were in Paris. The world's fastest runner, arguably at that time, was a man named Eric Little. He was from Scotland. You know this story. I'm just going to tell it to you again, just like you just heard for Samuel. You know that story. You know this story, too. Eric Little from Scotland. Arguably the fastest man in the world in the 100-meter dash. The Olympics happen in Paris. And as they're approaching, Eric Little finds out that the time trials for the 100-meter dash is going to be on a Sunday. And Eric Little, the son of a missionary mother and a father, says, I'm not running. I'm not going to run on Sunday. I'm not going to run on the Sabbath. And he offended a lot of people. He irritated people in the church. He irritated 
his teammates. He irritated and offended his coaches. He offended people back in Scotland. He offended and irritated people all over Great Britain for whom he was running. I'm not running on a Sunday. And he stuck to his guns. When the time trials came for the 100-meter dash, the entire world was aware of the situation because it was in headlines, in newspapers, all over the world. Eric Little is not running for his country on that day. And while the time trials were going and the gun goes off and the race is going, you know where Eric Little was? He was in a church. And he was preaching in a little Scottish church in Paris. There were people behind the scenes that were working for Eric Little, who had some influence with the Olympic Committee, and they arranged for Eric Little to be able to run in the 400-meter dash, a race he had never trained for. And you know what? Eric Little ran that race, and he won the gold medal. He didn't just win the gold medal. He set a world record. It may not always be that way, that God will honor a person that way. But he did that day. He honored that man because that man honored him. He was concerned for the glory of God. He was concerned for the glory of God's people, the well-being of the people. And he wanted to be a witness. And he was saying, there's something more important to me than the Olympics and the value system of the world. Someday we need to watch chariots of fire here at the church. Again, we have the LGBTQ plus agenda being pressed in on us. Abortion. We stand against these things. We have to. Doesn't mean we hate people who have had an abortion. No. LGBTQ. But we also stand against, if we're wise and we're courageous, we stand against racial injustice. You're going to anger people when you do. I've had too many messages. I'm not going to go into details again on this subject. If you stand for holiness in some ways, you're going to be right-wing conservative. Stand up for racial injustice, left-wing liberal. You're going to offend, offend We're called to stand up for what is right, for God, for his kingdom ways. Racial injustice. Stand with the the Martin Luther King Juniors. But we don't stand with injustice causes that marry themselves to sexually immoral causes and they unite together in some kind of civil rights movement And then if you don't join the bandwagon, if you don't join the one that is more of a a color-related injustice thing, you don't join them because they're married together with a sexually immoral agenda, you're viewed as a bigot or whatever. Do you see the the offense? No. We're going to stand up for injustice. We're going to stand up against immorality as God's people. We're going to speak the truth because we're the pillar of truth in the world and it offends. I want to tell you what we need right now, brothers and sisters. We need a revival. That's what we need. 
We need a revival in the church. We need people who have a heart for God, a heart for Christ, and a heart for the things that matter to Christ and to God. How do you cultivate that heart? What produces such people? If you take your Bible and open it up halfway, you'll come to the songs and the psalms. Who wrote those psalms? Most of them, it was David. It was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of prayer. He loved God's word. He loved God. He depended on God. He was a man of prayer. That's where his power came from. Because he was a man of prayer, waiting on the Lord, depending on the Lord. He loved the Lord. He didn't need a spear and a javelin because the word of God was his sword of the spirit. He could have used anything. He wanted to do his will. The call of the day is revive us again. Revive us again. David wanted to do the will of God. I was at a, I was at a men's meeting yesterday morning, Saturday, at Gethsemane Missionary Baptist Church. I was the only white person there. The black man that was preaching, bringing the message there, that was the strongest message I have heard at a men's breakfast or men's meeting that I have heard in 20 years. I can't get into the details, but he had one funny thing that he said. He said, in this world, there are two gardens. There are two gardens. There's the Garden of Eden, and then there's the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, this is what you say in the Garden of Eden. You say, not your will, but mine be done. When you're in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, you say, not my will, but yours be done. We need a revival. People who are ready to do the will of God, no matter the cost. That's the challenge I leave for you now this morning. That's the challenge. The land lies before you. You have a micmash before you. Geba, Gibeah, Benjamin. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world, the whole world is the promised land. And every square inch says Jesus is Lord, or it's supposed to. All creation is groaning and waiting for the sons and the daughters just like Jonathan and David and Eric Little and you to be revealed. This is the base camp, beacon light for us right now. Outside of the doors is our mission field, the Micmashes, the Gibas. It's your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, serving in the military, athletics, the parks, Seaburger Park here. Outside is the mission field. When you leave these doors, let's pray. God Almighty, we get stirred by Jonathan and David, but don't let this, Lord, I pray, Father. I pray as your servant, don't let this be a rah-rah speech this morning. When we leave here, I pray that you will move each individual heart in here to have a grit and a determination and a resolution of the will to do your will and to bring you glory and to be 
the light that the church is supposed to be in this world. Make us to be those people. Glorify your name and use us to reach the lost. We pray this in his name, Jesus. Amen.